are in our second week in the story of Ruth. And last week we were introduced to a character named Naomi. And were things going good for Naomi or bad? They were going bad for Naomi. She had left her people. She'd left God's land and she'd left God and she'd gone to another land, the land of Moab. And when she'd gotten to Moab, things had just fallen apart for her. Her family had died, and she hears then that there is food back in Bethlehem, God's promised land, and she takes her daughter-in-laws to return home, right? Return to God's land, return to God's people, and return uh, to God. And today, as we go through this, we're going to see in chapter 2 that God is both in control of all things and he's kind. You'll remember from last week that Naomi said this in verse 20 and 21. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered. For the Lord Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Naomi believes that God is in control, but that he has not been kind to her. Things have literally slipped out of her hands. And I'm sure you can relate. We've all had things that have just slipped out of our grasp that we've wanted, and they're no longer there, or we've not been able to get our grasp on them, and then we start to wonder, God, if you're in control, or are you in control? And if you're in control, why has this happened? Are you not kind? But then she decides to go back with Ruth. So Naomi and Ruth came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And we get this sense that chapter 2 is about to open us up to some hope because there had been a famine, but now there's food. Today we're going to talk about what happens when life slips away and looking to God who is in control of all things and is kind. I'm going to pray for us and my wife Virginia is going to come up and read the scripture to you from chapter 2. But would you bow your head with me now? Father God, we pray that as we open up your word, you would change us and that you would give us hope in who you are. We pray that we would be transformed by your grace. And even now, as people wrestle with the things that have slipped out of their lives, Lord, that they would come to a fresh trust in you, the God who is in control, and a fresh rest in you in the God who is kind. We thank you for your word. In your name we pray, amen. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Ruth, the Moabitist, asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, Go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. 
Boaz asked his servant, who was in charge of the harvester, harvesters, whose young woman is this? The harvesters answered, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little in the shelter. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they're harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. She fell face down, bowed to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor with you so that you notice me, although I am a foreigner? Boaz answered her, Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me how you left your father and mother in your native land, and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done, and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. My Lord, she said, I have found favor with you, for you have comforted and encouraged your servant, although I am not like one of your female servants. At mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. When she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her even gather grain among the bundles and don't humiliate her. Pull out some stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain and went into the town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. Amen. The word of God. What do you do when things slip away, when you want them or you're pursuing them and you almost have them and they just slip away? Spring of 2014, my favorite soccer team, Liverpool FC, is on the verge of winning the English Premier League for the first time in 25 years. It's the very end of the season. We're on top of the league. There's no playoffs. All we have to do is play strong until the end of the season. And we want this title. We want this title because our captain, Steven Gerrard, Mr. Liverpool, Captain Fantastic, has led us over the last decade and has never gotten a title. And so we want this title for our team, but we also want this title for him. First place, five games left. No titles in the last 25 years. And we're playing one of the toughest teams in the league, Manchester City. But we're playing them at home. They're ranked third. We come out. We score two goals. Then City comes back and scores two goals. It's all tied up. But at the end of the game, we score in dramatic fashion and win the match. 
still at the top of the table, just beat the third team in the league. And the players rush to the middle of the field. The stadium's going crazy. I'm on the couch, jumping up and down, crying. And Captain Fantastic, Steven Gerrard, gathers the team into a huddle and says this. This does not slip now. This does not slip now. We go to Norwich, which is our next team. We go to Norwich, and exactly the same. We go again. Come on. I'm like screaming. I'm crying. I'm like, yes. The camera's right in the middle of the huddle, so you feel like you're right in the middle of it. We go to Norwich, and we win. Three more matches. We're almost there to the title, our first title in 25 years. And then we play number two, Chelsea. And even as Steven Gerrard had said, don't let this slip, all of a sudden, it slipped. It didn't just slip out of our hands. Captain Fantastic Steven Gerrard literally slipped. Well, when Gerrard slipped, and Denver Barr's in here. Out comes Minilay, but Barr punishes of all people, Steven Gerrard. It's a terrific moment for Chelsea, but an awful one for the Liverpool skipper. Liverpool nil, Chelsea won. And Steven Gerrard has made a huge mistake there. He slips. Man. Now, I know you all are like, what's this have to do with anything? Let me tell my story, all right? I'm still hurt by this. Oh, man. It was, it was just like that. Chelsea goes on to score again. We lose the game. We go on to the next match, and we blow it again. And we end up not winning our first title. And Steven Gerrard retires, never having won a title with Liverpool. Captain Fantastic, Mr. Liverpool himself, Stevie G, this does not slip. And he slips. He literally slips. It all felt so cruel. It was right there. It was like right in our hands. And it slipped away. Can you relate to that in life? Can you relate to feeling like you've got it or you're pursuing it and you're right there and it just falls away? Life is like that. Things slip away. That, that person that you wanted, that place that you wanted, that opportunity that you were longing for, that, thought, that thing that you felt like you really needed, and it just slipped away. And when things slip away, we begin to question. We begin to question God. God, if you're in control, how could this have slipped away? And God, even if you are in control, how could you be kind if you let this slip away from me, from me? And as those things begin to happen, and as we have those questions for God, then we start to think it's all on us. And if God's going to let things slip away from me, then it's only on my shoulders. And somehow I've got to figure this life out because God's not kind. And I'm going to miss out on something because I cannot trust God's control or his kindness. And then we begin to live under this pressure that life is totally up to us. We live under this anxiety that says, if I slip, I'm out. And everything feels like it's up to chance and it's random. Life feels chaotic when things slip out of your hands. But today, as we look at Ruth 2, I just want to simply reassure you that God is in control. And God 
is kind. God has got this. God has got this, and he's got you. When we start chapter 2, things aren't about to slip away for Naomi. They already have. They've come back to Bethlehem, and she has nothing in her hands. She is a widow. She is also a refugee because she's traveled from Moab back to Bethlehem. They have no provision. They have no way of making food, even though they've heard there's food in Bethlehem. They have no prospects for food, and they have no protection. Ruth and Naomi are both widowed. They're both refugees. Ruth is a functional orphan because she does not have the protection of her father, and they're poor. There's nothing there. There's no beams of light. There's, there's nothing in their hands. It's all already slipped away. And then it just so happens. And then it just so happens. We're introduced to this character named Boaz. And what we're told about Boaz is that he's a godly man. He's wealthy. And Ruth just so happens to end up in the field of Boaz, who is a relative of Naomi. Ruth asks her mother, Naomi, can I go and glean in the fields? Can I just go choose a field and glean? Gleaning was when poor people would go into someone's field and say, can I pick up the scraps that are left behind as you harvest your crops? God had made these rules that people were to gather from the harvest, and anything that fell out of their hands or fell on the ground, they'd just leave it. And the widows and the orphans, and the poor, and the refugees could come behind them and just pick up the scraps. And that was God's way of making sure that those who were vulnerable and impoverished were taken care of. And so Ruth asked her mother, can I leave you here and go glean? Because Ruth is a hard worker, and she's decided to take care of her mother-in-law. And in verse 3, it says this, Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters, and she happened to to be. Say, happen to be. In the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. In the original language, it doesn't just say, just so happened to be. It says, she happened to happen. The happenstance that happened to her, the chance that was chanced upon her, was that she was in this field of a man named Boaz, who was wealthy, who was godly, and who was related to Naomi's husband, Elimelech. And what the author wants us to see, the storyteller is trying to convey, is that it's not chance at all. It's not just that she happens to happen to be in this field. It's that God's good hand is on her life. Boaz is the owner of the property that she happens to find herself in. And we'll talk about this more in the coming weeks, but Boaz is someone who can redeem the life of Naomi and Ruth. And it just so happens that that's where Naomi ends up. The author is trying to point us towards a God who is in control and a God who is sovereign. We use these words as Christians a lot, God's providence and God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is God's control over all things. And God's providence is God orchestrating to provide and preserve according to his purposes. God is always in control. He's always at work. He's never, he's never taken a time out from doing what he does. But 
we often want him to do that in miraculous, spectacular ways. And the reality is, he often does it in the shadows, in the mundane of life, in the things that just so happen to happen, in things that seem left up to chance. Sarah Ivel puts it this way, Providence is God's hidden hand at work in our lives. Our gracious Heavenly Father orders everyday events that seem mundane. Unexpected events and unordinary occurrences are sovereignly ordained. Our seeming mistakes are luck of the draw, and chance happenings are not that at all. The hand of the Master who works all things for glory and our good orchestrates them. Jesus says in the New Testament that the hairs on your head are numbered and not one can fall, not one bird can fall apart from God's will. God is sovereign and providential. For the Christian, this means there is no sense of chance or luck. It might feel that way, but God is in control of all things. And for us, that means that as we live our lives, And as we work hard and as we pursue things and things work out and they don't work out and some things we're able to grasp onto and some things slip through our fingers, we do all that from a position of rest and trust because it's really not on your shoulders. It's in God's hand. From my own life, I see this in several ways. Virginia and I were really good friends in college, and then we just so happened to move to Nashville together, even though we weren't dating. And we got very serious during that time in Nashville, and then our relationship just fell apart. I wanted to get married. She wasn't ready. Things just fell apart. I moved to London. I moved to St. Louis. She moved back from Nashville to Memphis. Out of my life. In my mind, she was always the girl that I should have married, and I could not figure out why it had not happened. And then it just so happened that my best friend moves to Memphis and calls Virginia up because he knew her since we had dated and says, I'm in Memphis. Can you connect me with some people? I'd like to get to know some people. So Virginia connects my best friend with her best friend, and then they end up dating. Now I've got to come to town and meet my buddy's girlfriend, who is Virginia's best friend. And through that, Virginia and I get back together, and two months later are engaged, and four months later are married. Love you. I I tell you that because I sat for five years going, I don't understand why it didn't work. I don't understand why I didn't marry the girl I thought I should have married. But I couldn't make it happen. But it just so happened that God's hands were at work beyond anything that I could do or control. And even as we think about this, this church, the fact that you're sitting here this morning is pretty amazing. When we decided to plant this church, we had all sorts of doors open for us. It was a green light. We felt like God was saying, come plant this church in Hollywood and Hallandale. It was an open door and a green light until it wasn't. Until I lost my job, we had to spend, my family and me had to spend two months separated in different cities because of the way the job thing went. And then when Virginia finally moved here, we had someone who was really intimidating, living near us, and it was... She was terrified. Her health started to slip away. We couldn't get uh, a house in this neighborhood. We were up in Fort Lauderdale trying to plant a church in Hollywood. Everything slipped away. But then it just so happened to happen 
that churches began to help us. St. Andrews, Iglesia Real, other churches just offered their hand of help. And while it seemed like good happenstance at the time, it was really God's hand at work. We were able to finally find a house that just so happened to be in the price range we could afford. And then when O.B. Johnson opened up, it just so happened that they chose us to be the church that was there. And as we met at O.B. Johnson for a year and a half, and last December I started to feel this is no longer working for us, but I have no idea where our church is going to move. And then it just so happens that my realtor called me and said, I've got a church building for you. And in disbelief, I came and saw this building, and God opened the door, and here we are. Things just so happen to happen, but it's not luck at all. It's the hand of God. There is no luck. It's only God who is in control, only God who is working behind the scenes, only God whose will cannot be missed. Only God who's got this. Whatever it is, he has it in his hand. God has this. And when we're walking through things, our minds can ascend there, but our hearts struggle to believe it. Let's get honest. Our hearts struggle to believe it. And here's the number one reason why. Pain. Pain. When we go through pain, we begin to wonder, God, are you there? And if you're there, are you in control? And if you're in control, why am I going through this pain? But God is at work and sovereign and providential and in control even when you and I go through pain. It's put this way by Dean Ulrich. He says this, Now the question is whether you view the situations of your life as part of God's plan. God is active in your life even when it hurts. God is active in our lives even when it hurts. He is not only in control, but also up to something good, namely the accomplishment of his redemptive plan and the perfection of his people. The challenge of walking by faith is to see the situations of your life as opportunities to glorify Jesus Christ. Too often we think that the situations of our lives are about what we want. Now, Sometimes we go through things, and the reason we experience pain is because we have unrealistic expectations on God. And so we end up with a broken heart because we think God has promised us something that he never promised. But sometimes it's just tragedy. I know many of you have been through tragedy. And what he's not saying is, buck up, come on, just put on your bootstrap, pull up your bootstraps and move forward and just trust God. No, it's not buck up, it's rest. Learn to see the goodness of God even in the hard things of your life because God is active in your life even when it hurts. He was active in Naomi's life even when it hurts. He's active in Ruth's life even when it hurts. And he's active in your life even when it hurts. Ruth happens to find herself at the right place at the right time. And Boaz happens to show up. Boaz is a godly man right from the get-go. He's greeting people in the name of the Lord and blessing people in the name of the Lord. And he sees Ruth and he says, who is that? 
and the foreman in charge of the field says, well, that's Ruth. That's the Moabitess who left her people and left her land and left her God in order to come to our land and our people and our God so that she could be loyal to Naomi. And now she's following the one true God, and she's been gleaning. She's been picking up the scraps all day. She's been working hard. And Boaz approaches Ruth. This is when they first meet. And Boaz says this in verse 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field, and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. Right away we see the kindness of Boaz. But it's not just the kindness of Boaz. It's the kindness of God to Ruth through Boaz. See, part of God's law, as I said, was that God had made these laws to protect the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the outsider, the sojourner, and the poor. And that law was that they would be able to glean from the scraps. But we know that Boaz is a godly man because he's going beyond the law. He's not doing the bare minimum that God requires. He's doing more for Ruth than the law requires. He's protecting her and providing her. In a time when things were violent, he says, stay in my field. Stay under my protection. Don't go near the other men. I will tell them not to touch you. Well, he's doing all this because he loves the Lord, because he loves God. And God's kindness is shown, being shown to Ruth through him. Well, Ruth is stunned. Why are you doing this for me? I'm a Moabitess. I'm from Moab. I'm from one of the enemies of Israel, and I'm not really part of this people. Why are you doing this? And Boaz says, listen, everybody's talking about you, Ruth. We've heard how you left your land, and you left your people, and you left your God, and you came to our land, and our people, and our God for the sake of Naomi. Everyone's talking about your, your sacrifice that you made. And we pray this for you. We pray this, Ruth. We pray that God restores you because we know you lost your husband. Boaz continues to go beyond the law. And he says, listen, don't just pick up the scraps. I want you to go find the bushels, the things that haven't fallen on the ground. And I want you to be able to pick through that and get what you want so that you can take it home to Naomi. And she does. She picks through the bundles. And she takes home over 30 pounds from the harvest to Naomi. In the beginning of the story, Naomi and Ruth were empty-handed. Everything had already slipped away. No provision, no prospect for provision, and no protection. And then it just so happens to happen that she ends up in the field where Boaz owns, and Boaz is a man who's kind, and a man who goes beyond God's law to show love to a woman who's a widow, and a refugee, and poor. He offers her dignity, and he says, I'm going to watch out for you. God's got Ruth, and God's got you. I, I, I don't know what that looks like for you, but I know that God is in control, and I know that you can trust him even when things seem to not be working out because he is a God who has his eye on every person. Can you say 
God's got this and mean it in your heart? Can you trust? Can you rest? If you're able to do that, it really changes everything. Because even in the midst of things not working out, even when things slip through your hand, you go, I know he sees, and I know he's good, and I know I can trust him. And listen, that totally changes the way you walk through tragedy. It totally changes the way that you even walk through death. God's got this. God's get, got this. He's in control of all things. But let me ask you a challenging question. God has all things, but does God have you? Like, have you given yourself to God? In the story, our characters, both Ruth and Boaz, they have no idea what's going on behind the scene. They're not manipulating. They're not like, if I show up here, maybe God will do this. They're simply trusting the Lord as they live out their daily lives, mundane stuff, a harvest. Sometimes we don't know what's up, but we still need to look up in trust at God. Boaz, when he's introduced on the scene, he's saying things like, the Lord be with you. And we get the sense that Boaz has a joyful obedience to the Lord because God has him. He allows Ruth to glean, but not just glean. He allows her to pick through things. He's obeying the Lord beyond what is required. He's doing justice to Ruth because she's a widow and she's a foreigner and she's poor. And I think it's helpful to look at someone like Boaz as all this discussion about social justice rages in the church and in the culture. And as we're confused by it, what part does social justice have to do with the gospel? And you have people saying, well, social justice is the gospel, and social justice has nothing to do with the gospel. But I think what's absolutely clear in the Old Testament is that God cares about justice. God does care about justice for the widow, the poor, the oppressed, the foreigner, and the vulnerable. And as people who have been redeemed by God, are we not called to care about the things that God cares about? Part of the character of God is that he's just, and that doesn't just mean that he punishes sin. It means that in terms of justice, that he also restores and protects and provides for those who are vulnerable and at risk. And what we see in Boaz is that he, as someone who has been saved, is doing justice. Look how it's put in Deuteronomy 24. Do not deny, say the word, to a resident alien. That's Ruth. She's a resident alien. She's a refugee. Or fatherless child. And do not take a widow's garment as security. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Remember how I saved you. And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this. When you reap the harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back to get it. It is to be left for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this. God is a God who delights in justice. Jeremiah 9 says that I am the Lord and I delight in justice in the earth. 
And it's not in place of salvation, but because we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we now do justice. Justice matters to God, and justice is not a replacement to the gospel. It is a response to the gospel. It's a response to the fact for Boaz that his people had been saved from Egypt. And for us, we've been saved from eternal damnation and separation from God because of Jesus Christ dying in our place. Now, I realize that the conversation in our country has gotten crazy about social justice, and there's so many things that we need to talk about. But we do not need to talk about whether God is concerned about justice because he is. He is concerned about justice. And part of God having us is that we are a, become a people who are committed to obey him by doing justice. Boaz has been had by God. God has Boaz. And we see that in him doing justice to Ruth. But going beyond the law, going beyond what the law of justice requires, and actually providing for her and protecting her. God has Boaz's joyful obedience. And God also has Ruth's loyalty. I think as we talk about God being in control, one of the things that we need to parse out is this. Some people say God has a plan, but God doesn't actually have their heart. Some people say God is in charge, but they have not let God be in charge of them. Some people say God's got this, but they will not let God have their life. And what is shown by that is that those people, or if that's you, you're not actually being loyal to God. You're looking to God as some sort of genie to help you get what you really want. That's called an idol. An idol is something that you worship and you construct your life around besides God. And in our culture, our idols are comfort, pleasure, power, influence, status, money, sex. The list goes on and on. And our culture actually encourages us to construct our lives around those things. That's how people get you in advertisements. They're actually playing towards your idol of comfort, your idol of pleasure, your idol of status. But listen, as Ruth has left her gods in Moab, we are called to leave the gods of this age behind and be completely loyal to God. We can't say God's got this without giving our loyalty to God. We are to abandon the idols of our age and look to Christ. Look to Jesus to lay those things aside that would get in the way of our relationship with him and to go after God and say, God has got this, but God has also got me. Everything else in my life is secondary, and I'm going to throw myself into his control. See, that's the funny thing is when people say, God has got this, he's in control. They actually don't believe he's in control because they still want to control their life. But you've got to take your hands off your idols and throw yourself onto a gracious God if you really want to be able to say authentically, God is in control. And that's exactly what Ruth does. That's exactly what Boaz sees in her. She has abandoned her gods in Moab and come and thrown herself on the God, the one true God of Israel. She has nothing. She's abandoned everything. God has Ruth's loyalty. 
jersey out of yours. He's worth your loyalty because in his control of all things, he is incredibly kind. He's incredibly kind. Look how we see that in the story. As the story concludes, Ruth walks in and she's got 30 pounds from the harvest. Remember at the beginning of the story, they had nothing. No prospects, no, no protection, nothing. She walks in and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you gather barley today and where did you work? 30 pounds on her back. May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Ruth told her mother-in-law, whom she had worked with, and said, the name of the man I worked with is Boaz. She doesn't know who he is. Then Naomi said to her mother, her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or to the dead. Naomi continued, the man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Ruth doesn't seem to understand what has just happened, and she just says, he also told me, stay with my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it is good for you to work with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Ruth walks in. Where'd you get this barley, Ruth? Well, I just ended up in this field of this guy named Boaz. And Naomi's like, wait, what? Who? Boaz? We're related to him. He's a family redeemer. In that time, someone who was related to someone who had lost something could use their power and wealth to buy it back for them and restore them. And so when Ruth hears the name Boaz, she's like, he's related to my husband, Elimelech, who passed away. There's an opportunity here. We can be redeemed. And it's at that moment that Naomi sees that God is not just in control, but he's also kind. He's not just in control, but he's also kind in his control. Look again what she says in verse 20. May the Lord bless him. May the Lord bless Boaz because the Lord has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. The man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. You see, when she sees the possibility of a redeemer who can restore her life and buy back what was lost, she sees the kindness of God in his control. She sees that she's still in his hand, and not only in his hand, but that his intentions towards her. Friends, let me point you to the ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ. And as you look to Jesus Christ, the ultimate redeemer, you will see the kindness of God towards you, a sinner. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was sent while we were still sinners so that sinners could be reconciled to God, redeemed from the wrath of God and from sin in order that we can no longer Call God judge, but Father. Jesus Christ became poor for your sake so that in him you might become rich. And as you begin to see those things, it doesn't answer all the questions about what slipped away from you. But it does help you have hope in God. 
as you experience things in life that feel like God is unkind, remember to look to the cross of Christ. Because as you look to the cross of Christ, you see the kindness of God towards you. Jesus was king of all, and he left his throne in heaven to come and give up control so that he might lay down his life for you and redeem you at great cost. When things slip away, remember that Jesus didn't let his life slip away. He gave it away for you because of his kindness towards you. And as you trust, as you learn to trust in his control, and as you learn to trust in his kindness, and things still slip away, remember that God's hand on you has not slipped at all. You may not know what he's doing, but because of his kindness to us in sending Jesus Christ to die for your sins, you know the kind of God he is. You may not know what he's doing, but because of Jesus Christ, you know the kind of God he is. He is in control, and he is kind. God's got this. God has you. Give yourself to him with trust. Let's pray. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we throw ourselves afresh on you. And we pray that you would infiltrate our hearts. We have so many of us that have been through difficult things and have seen things slip away. And we need to be reminded on a deep level that you love us. And you have not let us slip out of your hand. And your intentions towards your people are kind. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us a boldness and a trust to praise you, the Lord our God, to praise you even when things don't work out the way we wish they had even when tragedy strikes, even when things slip out of our hands, we pray that you would give us a fresh faith in you. And all God's people said, Amen.